Welcome, I'm Moshe Ferber. And I am Ariel Munafon. And this is the Silver Lining Podcast, a podcast about security architecture. Welcome to the Silver Lining Podcast. We are still broadcasting from Cyber Week. This is the special edition where we uh, meet some interesting guests who are coming over to Cyber Week, and then we uh, talk to them about engineering, emerging technologies, cloud, and uh, this today specifically, we are talking with Bo Woods. And I know Bo, Bo for uh, many years, and he is one of the best experts in protecting IOTs. This is a specific uh, topic. This is like the specific expertise. Not many people understand it. And more specifically, Bo's story is that he came from, a, he was working for a hospital. He was like an IT manager, a security manager for a hospital. And he made this shift all the way from IT manager at a hospital. He became an expert for medical devices. And today he's uh, basically with the Atlantic Council and he's uh, consulting high-end politicians and high-end uh, officials about how to use technology in a safer way. And I find this amazing. He's also running a community uh, called I'm the Cavalry. And uh, I found both work fascinating uh, and I'm really happy that he's here with us today. Hi, Bo. Good morning. Hi, I'm happy to be here. How do you find Cyber Week? Uh, I like it. The, uh, the weather was nicer um, in the early morning today yeah. than it is now. <laughs> Six right. o'clock to eight o'clock, it's amazing weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but yeah, the, the event is uh, it's great. I was out here a couple of years ago as well. Um, and it's, uh, you get people from all different walks of life, right? Engineering, uh, academia, uh, public policy, um, just kind of all over the place. Uh, even just people who are uh, interested in security and walk in and go to like hang out at, at B-Sides uh, or something like that for a few hours. Okay, so tell us a, a bit about yourself, uh, the Armed Recovery and what you do today. Yeah, so uh, you, you alluded to some of this in your intro um, and I appreciate it. Uh, I started out my professional security career at a hospital um, working to uh, protect you know, patient safety, human lives. Um, through the, uh, the clinical systems and also the medical devices. Um, a few years ago, some colleagues of mine and I uh, helped start an initiative, uh, like you said, kind of a community of interest, um, volunteers, part-time, spare time, uh, called I Am The Cavalry. And our realization was that our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas impacting human life, public safety, national security, um, and so we always kind of thought or expected uh, as a bunch of hackers and security researchers that, well, you know, I'm sure that there's somebody at the top of like industry or government who's like watching out for us, making sure that we don't accidentally like fall off a cliff while we're while we're looking at something um, shiny and blinky. Uh, and no matter how high and deep we got into those institutions, we found that that wasn't really the case. <laughs> so um, it was a kind of a watershed moment for us. It, scared the hell out of us because we realized we were the adults in the room. Um, and <laughs> when was the last time that was the case? Um, but it also empowered us because we said, if the cavalry isn't coming, then it falls to us. Um, you know, the idea being the, the cavalry, like John Wayne coming out from the, the wild west to like save the day at the very end. If that's not provided for us, then it's up to us to provide that ourselves to the community, to the industry, into the world. Um, and so I am the cavalry is kind of a personal attestation that I'm going to be a part of the solution. So uh, there's not a, an ego in it. It just so happens that um, that became the, the calling card. We didn't intend it to be. It was just going to be like 
uh, a launching off point, um, and then we'd find a new name, but that one kind of stuck. <laughs> um, then uh, about three years ago, uh, with another colleague of mine, Josh Corman, uh, we uh, took a break from the private sector world and went into a nonprofit, a think tank called the Atlantic Council, uh, which is a, a global public policy uh, research facility. Um, we're nonprofit uh, and nonpartisan, so we tend to look at areas of international security. So. Uh, or in the Middle East, um, increasing uh, income inequality in Latin America, things that are destabilizing to, uh, to you know, um, democracies and things like that. And a part of that is obviously cybersecurity now, right? Um, so Josh and I came in uh, and picked up the program, ran it for a little while, um, and now we're both fellows at the Atlantic Council, uh, which means we, we're affiliated there and we do some good work together. Um, but I've uh, hopped back out into the private sector again and uh, kind of picked up my consulting firm where I left off. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, guys, don't be mistaken. Bo might be uh, wearing a suit. He might live in D.C., but he's a free spirit in heart. <laughs> and he <laughs> finds himself much more comfortable walking on the Himalayas or traveling somewhere. Yeah, for sure. And this is where I met him, walking on the streets of uh, Mumbai somewhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, you start talking about security? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Yeah, so uh, Bo is a, he's a real uh, interesting guy. And, but we have a limited time, and I really want to jump in because this topic is so important. How do you create better engineering uh, for IoT, for medical devices, for connected cars? I mean, this is our lives here that we're talking about, and yeah. I don't want my uh, girl to go into a car that I have no idea what it should behave, and I don't want to have a pacemaker, pacemaker sorry, that is, I have no idea uh, what is the connectivity option to this guy. So how do we do better engineering? And uh, again, that's yeah. about online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I'll start with some of the unique challenges. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, somebody made an observation yesterday that uh, too many of these conferences spend the whole time talking about the problem and not enough time talking about the solution. Uh, but I want to just really quickly tee up um, some of the unique things that people might not understand or be thinking about. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, over the past five years, we've spent about a trillion dollars globally in products, uh, services, people on cybersecurity. Um, and over that same time period, we have about a hundred percent failure rate measured in breaches, right? So like, that's not a, a super promising set of numbers, especially if you apply it to, uh, the automotive industry, um, aviation industry, healthcare, uh, the electric sector, um, those types of numbers would, would crush the goals that we're trying to achieve with those very institutions, right? So we have to do better, um, in these sef safety disciplines. Also, we found that um, a lot of the, uh, the approaches that we take to doing security uh, in uh, protecting confidentiality of information, whether it's you know, personal health information, whether it's uh, intellectual property, credit card numbers, what have you, um, might not fit well into a public safety uh, context. Um, so uh, when I worked at a hospital, one of the things that um, that I wanted to do is put really strong passwords with tight lockout mechanisms on the accounts uh, until I walked the floor of the emergency department and noticed that uh, actually when doctors move from station to station, they're there for maybe 30 seconds before they're back on the floor going somewhere else. So um, adding extra complication to that if they forget their password yeah. uh, or something like that means that it might take them 15 or 30 minutes to see a patient, right? Which defeats the whole purpose of, of them being there. Um, so kind of that, that mission uh, to approach mismatch, I think is, is 
particularly acute. Um, you also obviously have different consequences, right? So when, uh, when you get a, a breach of healthcare information, somebody might use that to go and, uh, and get healthcare somewhere else with um, an insurance card or something like that. They might be able to blackmail the person and do something, but uh, when uh, the, the impact is that you could change somebody's medical record or uh, do some harm to them directly through the devices, uh, obviously you escalate um, the harm to people yeah. a lot more and closer to it. Um, you also look at the time scale. So what's typical replacement lifetime of a, a PC or even a server? Maybe three, five, 10 years if you're lucky. Well, a lot of uh, healthcare equipment is out there for 20, 25 years, right? Pacemaker's life is about 20 years. Um, uh, an automobile is on the road for 11 to 20 years uh, before it comes off. So um, there are a lot of uh, really, really long-lived um, devices and systems out there that, you know, those were threat modeled like in the 1990s, yeah. if we're lucky. Um, and so there's a number of other challenges, but again, I don't want to dwell too much on the problem space. Let's get to how you can do better engineering. But, but at least we say that uh, those, those uh, uh, IoT devices or, uh, or, uh, or objects are really uh, life, life changes or life uh, yeah. protectors. It's, it's little different that to protect the computer or, or some information that then can be difficult, yeah, yeah. but there is like uh, Moshe said, it's, our life, our kid life. Well, yeah. Also, th there's a big challenge here. I mean, can, uh, pacemaker would be better if they have internet connectivity because then you can save life. But again, you, then you endanger people. This is yeah. always the conflict that Bo lives in and every, uh, every, every manager in this uh, industry lives in. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I'd love to uh, talk about a little bit more about that too. Um, so you mentioned an internet-connected pacemaker. You know, a lot of the security people on the podcast are just like cringing and grimacing right now. <laughs> Hopefully they're not driving. They might like drive off a cliff. <laughs> but but um, we actually have hard, rigorously obtained evidence to show that the more you can do telemetry from these devices back to the doctors, the better the patient care is, right? I mean, uh, think about um, somebody who maybe uh, they've got a, a small issue uh, that a pacemaker is, is picking up because it's also monitoring some of this. Uh, and it can send that back to the doctor and the doctor can say, well, look, we know that within the next two weeks you're gonna have a major issue. So why don't you come in today, right? And so you can go out to you know, prestigious, rigorously, uh, academically um, certified journals um, and find all kinds of information about the great benefits that this connected technology brings. Uh, in the automotive domain, um, something like 30,000 people a year die on American highways through what's thought to be preventable um, uh, accidents. Uh, that's a hundred people a day that are basically sacrificed each time we delay uh, by a day the ad advancement of some of those technologies that will improve highway safety. And that's just the United States. Around the world, about a million people a year die in roadway accidents, and probably a lot of those are preventable. So, um, you know, as security people, like our natural instinct when we hear about more connectivity and more software uh, is to, to feel uncomfortable <laughs> with that situation. But the reality is that's where the world is going for greater benefit and greater promise. So I see our job as security practitioners and especially in the, the public safety and human life sphere is to preserve the promise that these devices have so that we've got the best chance of humanity uh, to uh, improve um, and save people's lives. Okay, so how do, we, 
how what do you recommend for companies for vendors to do better engineering yeah um, so we've put out a, a couple of uh, I think fundamental documents that are um, you know my own perspective they're great <laughs> uh, one of those that I'll, I'll talk about they're both very similar um, the one that we put out most recently in in 2016 um, uh, and it's uh, it's had a good life cycle I'll talk a little bit about that um, it's called the Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices. The idea being, as doctors take a symbolic oath to look after their patients and act in their best interest, increasingly medical devices are the care delivery mechanism. So they're actually providing the care. Uh, they should be designed, operated, built, maintained with that same symbolic spirit. So we took this document that was a couple of thousand years old uh, and translated it into modern times. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, the... Uh, the mashup between um, Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics and the original Hippocratic Oath, right? You know, first do no harm, uh, or through inaction let others come to harm, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, we broke it down into five general principles, and they've got you know flowery descriptions like you would see in the, the old parchment. But essentially it comes down to, uh, if you look at this and say all systems fail, um, healthcare devices, medical devices are there to prevent the natural course of a disease transpiring, then what's your uh, posture towards failure that prevents harm or that gives patients the maximum capability? And so the five things that we laid out uh, just really quickly are, uh, how do you anticipate and avoid harm from failure? Um, how do you take help from others uh, to learn about failure, potential failure modes? Uh, how do you instrument and learn from failure directly? Um, how do you uh, inoculate against future failure? And then how do you um, isolate and contain failure and make, make sure that failure modes are visible to the operators? So it's, it's all sound engineering principles that's put under a veneer of um, something that a doctor can pick up and look at and be like, oh, I get why you would want to do all of these things. Mm -hmm. That a medical device maker's CEO would say, of course we're gonna do those. Uh, that a patient could look at, that a hospital administrator could look at, that an insurer or regulator or a member of Congress or parliament. Um, we wrote it to be accessible to the common person, but with technically literate details underneath so that then you can hand that off to your engineering team to go implement and build. Okay, so the idea is that failures can happen, vulnerability can happen, that just you need the right procedures around it to make sure that when it happens, you take care of it, you, and you learn the lesson so it won't happen again. Yeah, that's right, right. So you're building in capabilities from the start rather than bolting them on later. You're making sure that you've got the apparatus uh, surrounding this that gives um, doctors or patients or whoever's gonna be operating it the best chance to um, to prevent harm and save lives. Okay. W when I when I was listening, I say failure, 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 failure. What is going on? Yeah, yeah but the, this is the, the main idea to know how yeah. to prevent it also in the, in the in the future. That's right. It's about shrinking the number of failures and their severity and maximizing the ability for you know a doctor or the patient to say, hey, something's wrong here. I've got to do something different. Right. So, um, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, when I say inoculate against future failures. Really what that talks about is uh, some kind of a software update mechanism, right? Pretty simple, really well accepted in most IT domains. Uh, but in medical devices, it gets tricky, right? How do you update a pacemaker, for instance? Well, it turns out there's a process, but it's pretty, pretty manually intensive, right? So the patient has to come in, maybe on their next visit, 
uh, and you do a handful of things, it probably takes between 15 to 30 minutes to do this process. Um, and it's entirely manual, entirely taking the doctor's time. There's a very small risk of failure um, or of something going wrong. That's why you don't do it at home, for instance. Um, so there are mechanisms, but they're painful. Uh, and not every device as a consequence has that capability because that takes up battery power, that takes up space on you know what might be a 32K memory chip um, uh, because you've got limited constrained components. Uh, so there's a lot of these things and a lot of these engineering practices that we know really well that sometimes don't translate over into um, medical practice or into automotive or aviation. Mm -hmm. So by revealing to, um, uh, to the decision makers why these things are important, all of a sudden they, uh, the organization catalyzes the will to do them, which a lot of times takes the security people who have been asking for these things for a while, mm -hmm. and it empowers them. Yeah, I, I've noticed uh, Tesla investing heavily in over-the-air updates. I mean, exactly for that to so make sure that, right. uh, that it's more uh, it's more computer on wheels than cars. So they make sure that they need to update it fast. So uh, they invested heavily in the process. Also, there's a challenge how to do this over-the-air, which in, in a way that is uh, secure because anyway, in yeah. a software update, you're replacing the operating system. So how can you make sure that you're uh, replacing it with a valid copy? Mm -hmm. So th this is the, basically uh, the challenge for doing fast implementation of this and accept the channel of battery life and connectivity mm -hmm. uh, and all of this. Uh, so again, uh, so we have the... Uh, make sure that when you fail, you fail smoothly and you uh, learn yeah. your lessons. Other engineering concepts that you uh, produce? Yeah, um, so one of the things that we found through some of our work, and I'll tell you a little bit about that work, is um, uh, that unlike most IT equipment, there aren't really good logs that are thrown off by medical devices. So we did a series of clinical simulations um, a couple of years ago with some doctor friends of ours uh, where you take a, uh, a hospital room, basically. Um, you get a bunch of nurses uh, and um, you know assistants in the room who have been given a script. Uh, that this is how a simulated case is going to go down. You then bring in a um, standard actor, and they actually have like standardized um, acting scripts. Uh, we created a fresh one for a hacked medical device. Gave it to the actor. Um, we had a team behind a. a you know, set a one-way glass looking into uh, the patient room. And then we took a doctor who was unaware and sent them in, right? They knew that it was gonna be a simulation, but they didn't know what it was gonna be. So when it started transpiring, uh, and we ran three of these and they all went, you know, in a similar direction, uh, the doctor did what the doctor should have done, which is start working the problem, right? Here's the problem in front of me. There's a patient having some problem and I wanna figure out what that is so I can fix it and treat it. Then we introduced uh, the complication. So in different cases, we had different complications, uh, but I'll just use one as an example. Um, in one of them, we had a, uh, an infusion pump, which is like a digital IV. It's you know the thing that you see on the, the bedside table that hooks into your arm and delivers uh, some medication. Um, that had been hacked through a drug library hack, uh, which is an actual thing that happened, right? Security researchers, found that some infusion pumps were vulnerable uh, to being able to change the drug libraries in the cloud. The thing that uh, indexes and tells you what drugs at what levels are appropriate and also to modify their, um, the limits. So these devices all have limits. So you, know, you can't give uh, something that would kill an elephant to, uh, to a, me. a baby, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, so 
uh, security researchers demonstrated that they could modify these these capabilities because they're all just software. Um, and then, uh, so in that case, the patient died. Uh, so quick swap, you pull the, the actor out because you don't want to actually like cut into an actor or do things to them. We put in a, a mannequin, a life-sized uh, realistic mannequin in their place. And the doctor picked it up, you know, started doing chest compressions, brought him back to life, uh, did all the right things in that case. And then said, well, there's still the underlying problem. So get that infusion pump back, hook them up, and let's start the treatment again. Um, that was a case where when we talked to the doctor afterwards and debriefed her, she said, you know, I never would have expected it was a hacked medical device. I thought it was just a nurse like set the rate too, too high or, you know, the bag, something happened to it. It was a physical problem. Um, we said, well, what would have happened if you had known that it was a hacked medical device? She said, oh, well, I would have swapped it out for one in a different room, which is great, except that the way this hack happened was in the cloud. In the cloud. So all the devices would have been impacted, right? Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things we learned from that um, is that the, the doctor never suspected that there was a problem. When we pressed her on it and said, what would you have done next after you know, this all got recovered and resolved? said, oh, well, I, I would have uh, you know, told us to get rid of those devices. said, well, what about um, sending it to somebody to analyze it? Oh, yeah, we could do that. Mm -hmm. So she didn't realize that that, that was going to be something that was important. Um, and then you know, talking to biomedical people, we say, well, if you got one of these devices, what would you do? Oh, well, I don't really know. I don't know how to get the data off of it to do an analysis of it. Um, so I, I probably would call the manufacturer. Maybe they could help. So you talk to the manufacturer and they say, first step is to erase all the data and submit this, right? <laughs> because they're thinking physical failure. Um, but when you press them, they say, well, yeah, it keeps you know, some data, but it's you know, what treatment was given at what time. It doesn't record like uh, the integrity of the software on the device or anything that you could use to do a forensic analysis. I'm not even talking about like intrusion detection stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got this whole stack of, of systemic issues that uh, you can try and address one of them, but it doesn't fix the others. So you really got to try and address all of them um, it, it, roughly at the same time uh, across different device types potentially. Um, so you know it's it's very very challenging in a lot of these in a lot of these areas. Yeah. Okay. okay. Somebody is cleaning the window. Yeah. Us, which was an interesting experience. The okay. physical windows, not yeah. the Microsoft. Windows. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Bo, this is really fascinating. So anyway, you're saying good engineering is not enough because uh, you still need to have your uh, the nurses understand that it could be a failure That's and right. have the right procedures inside a hospital to detect right. a failure and then uh, do the forensics, post forensics, understand mm -hmm. what happened. So it's all basically a big uh, supply chain that need to be addressed yeah. from the labs of the vendors all the way to the emergency room. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and to that point, um, we're trying to raise awareness with physicians as well. So uh, we've got um, some papers into medical journals. Uh, one is the Journal of Medical Informatics Research, and it's talking about the success stories to come out of the Hippocratic Oath that I mentioned earlier. Um, and I won't uh, give all of it away. It's, you can find it. It's free online. Um, but uh, one of the things that we think is a big success is that that forensically sound evidence capture, the, the point number three from the Hippocratic Oath of uh, instrument and learn from failure has now made its way into FDA guidance. So now medical device makers will have to show how they capture evidence of potential issues so that it can be investigated later. 
Um, we've also got some other articles going into different publications. One that I'm really, really proud of is uh, we just had a, an article go into the Journal of American Medical Association um, talking about uh, an initiative called We Heart Hackers. Uh, and the We Heart Hackers initiative is something that I and the Cavalry and the FDA launched um, to get more security researchers out to the biohacking village, or to get more medical device makers to the biohacking village at DEF CON. Um, I saw that the, the woman was responsible for the villages here for yeah, the Nina conference. Ali. Yeah. She was yesterday at the IoT conference? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We spoke back to back. And okay. so she runs the biohacking village. I run the, the device lab in the biohacking village, so mm -hmm. that's a component of it. Uh, and last year we had four medical device makers that came out. This year, I think we're gonna double that or maybe triple that um, if we get uh, a few more uh, yeses. But this is where medical device makers are bringing their equipment, putting it in front of security researchers and saying, we know there's flaws. We want you to find them so we can learn from you, sure. right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about like other industries and other places, um, certainly working in some of the traditional manufacturing industries, that's like unheard of. Even in software uh, industry, I mean, until relatively recently, you know, coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs, bug bounties, bug bashes, they were fairly rare. And now we've got, you know, eight to 12 of the, the leading medical device makers coming in and saying, no, nope, we want to learn. Like, here's the thing, go at it. Like, tell us what you find. Um, and this is all happening in a, a fairly public venue, right? Anybody can walk into DEF CON. Uh, you just have to pay your $280 cash. Uh, and you go in and hang out and test these things. So I'm really, really encouraged by some of the progress we're seeing at the very top. Um, and a lot of that's been led by the FDA, right? The regulator has been pushing on this and uh, more than using a stick, they've been bringing people together, which I think is a great approach. Um, but you've still got you know, the 99% uh, of medical device makers that are below those top 1%. Uh, and a lot of the hospitals too that are not like the Mayo Clinic or some of the other big ones mm -hmm. um, that need to, to kind of bring this up and um, get more awareness and attention to it, uh, education about what to do, and then actual implementation. Okay. We have made amaz amazing uh, progress. There are still lots to do, but there's amazing progress. And I think this is uh, a lot of this is up to you because of you and because of uh, what you do in the Atlantic Council and because of what you do with Undercovery. So thank you for that. Uh, everybody thank owes you a big death. <laughs> yeah. uh, so well, thank you. If you want to repay it, get involved, do something, you know, uh, talk to somebody who's not in our community and, and just ask them, you know, what do you care about? And maybe try and educate them a little bit, bring them in and uh, listen and, and build some empathy and understanding. How can we connect or join to the community? Yeah, so uh, I am the cavalry.org. Um, there's a, uh, a website there that you can go and check it out. Um, we've got a mailing list that you can sign up for. You can follow us on Twitter at I am the cavalry. Um, and I can give you guys the, the contact info you can put on the site or whatever. Okay, we'll put it on the website. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you both. It was very fascinating. And yeah. keep up the good work and right. enjoy Cyber Week. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.